Children, you're dismissed to your class, pre-K to fifth grade. So thank you, Linda and Thelma. Let's pray for the VBS this morning as we begin our, worship, our study of God's Word. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much for this opportunity that you've given to us to minister the gospel to our community and for how you've laid it, especially on Thelma and Linda's hearts, to lead it. And uh, we pray for them that you'd give them the stamina and the, and the strength to make it through these uh, next few weeks of preparation as well as the, the week you keep them healthy and that uh, you would just continue to fill up their heart with the love for the gospel itself. We pray for our leaders and teams that you would continue to build them. We thank you for the volunteers that you've already worked to bring together. Um, we ask that uh, they themselves would enjoy the week, have fun, and make it fun for the children and the families. And, and we pray for them that you would especially be bringing people who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before. Um, that you would create wonderful, open, gospel-centered conversations with these families, that you would even build friendships, um, especially as we sit around and enjoy a meal together uh, every day after VBS. We pray for our church, too, that you continue to um, make us a very supporting church of VBS, as you have so many after year after year after year, that you'd raise up more of us that need to serve, that uh, you would keep us in prayer and fill up that prayer schedule quickly. And uh, we, of course, above all, just pray for the openness to the gospel in the hearts of the children and the families, uh, the ladies' study that will be going on for the moms, just so many opportunities, and that you would be pleased to bring people to salvation for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And we ask that you would bless your word this morning to us and equip us as your people. Amen. Amen. Looking forward to it. That is going to be a fun week. So... Before we look at uh, Luke chapter 11 today, I want to uh, recommend a book to you. And so as I mentioned before, every month I'm going to be recommending a different book from my bookshelf. It's in News and Notes, so the link is there to buy it. But the one I want to recommend this month is Gospel Fluency. So by Jeff Vanderstelt, uh, Gospel Fluency. And the subtitle really says it all. Speaking the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. And uh, I read this book when it first came out a couple years ago, and I have to say that it really helped me see how I can relate the gospel better to various aspects, not just of my life, but people's lives that I come into contact with, and it just makes sharing the gospel so much easier. Uh, so a lot of good stories in here, very practical books. So again, Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. The link is in News and Notes, so you can purchase it uh, pretty easily uh, through that. Well, we're continuing our study in Luke chapter 11 this morning, and uh, we probably uh, all know people who say things like, well, you know, if there's really a God, then just let him show, myself, show himself to me, and then I'll believe in him. And actually, we might know quite a few people like this. Uh, skeptics are not hard to find. They've never been difficult to find uh, any time in church history. But we're looking at this particular crowd that has been building and how Jesus is addressing them. So last Sunday, we read this in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. He was casting out a demon, and it was mute, and it came out. About when that demon had gone out, that the mute man spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, and others, to test him, were demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to them, and so his speech begins. 
And we learned last week that this general populace of people has decided they want some kind of a decisive sign from heaven, somehow that's going to prove beyond all doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't want just another miracle. They've seen a lot of miracles. And uh, it's interesting that they've already decided that they're not going to believe any of those miracles. They want a demonstration of power that's going to be compelling and remove all question about his identity. But we read in the passage this morning, this is an insincere request. It's really just a test. They want an occasion to not believe yet again in Jesus, to discredit him as the Messiah, as the Son of God that he claims to be. So, at the end of the day, they're not going to get their sign. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 29, and let me read the story to you. It's also printed for you in your worship folder. So, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of darkness, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So as Luke records that day's controversy and Jesus' message, he's really confronting us too, as his readers, with the same message, and that is to receive the word of Jesus and become wholly filled with light. It's really a positive message. Believe in Jesus, receive his word, and be filled fully with light. Jesus, as the divine Son of God, is the greatest revelation, and he gives the greatest revelation to humanity. So in verses 29 to 32, we're going to learn that Jesus' word is the sign that they will receive. And in verses 33 to 36, Jesus' word is the light. Now, our passage today is commonly referred to as the signs controversy. It has parallels in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel as well. And most scholars understand they're all referring to the same actual event that took place. But each gospel writer, uh, as we've mentioned so many times before, has their own little emphases that they want to pull out as they're telling the story of Jesus Christ And we want to focus on Luke and his message this morning, to which is to receive the word of Jesus and become wholly filled with light. So first of all, Jesus' word is the sign. This is an evil generation we read about. Jesus says to them, when the crowd is increasing, he says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign is going to be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So the crowds are increasing, gathering to hear Jesus, and he says to them, you're an evil group of people. 
And they're evil for a number of reasons. He could have listed them all, but they're evil because they don't believe in him. And that makes them evil people. Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles for over two years at this point. And they don't believe in him. So they ask for a sign, but they're not going to be given one. But let's just be clear. They have already been given multiple signs. They've chosen not to believe in him. In other words, he's not going to give them one more sign. They've had plenty They haven't responded to them. They haven't believed in him as the Messiah who brings the kingdom. And we must not forget, too, that they've had all of the history of redemption pointing to this point in history as well. All the testimony of the law and the prophets and the writings, all of that pointing to Jesus, and he's taught about it on multiple occasions. So just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites of Assyria by his preaching which is what comes up in a moment. That's his emphasis. That's how he was assigned to them. By his preaching on repentance, so the preaching of the Son of Man will be assigned to that generation. And Jesus picks the title Son of Man on purpose to point to the fact that uh, he is that figure from the book of Daniel. Now, Matthew in his gospel points out further the whole episode of Jonah being in the sea creature, and Jesus' resurrection. But Luke's focus is not on that sign. His focus is on the other sign, and that is on the preaching and the response to the preaching, which is repentance. And so, if you want, you can turn to Jonah chapter 3, but I'll, I'll read you his message. It's very simple. Jonah preached a very short, simple message. Sometime in the beginning of the 8th century B.C., And Jonah 3 begins, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from himself, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let a man, beast, herd, flock, taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let them call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands." Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had decreed, declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now Jonah preached a much less significant message in the history of redemption to these people. Jonah did not preach for their spiritual salvation, but for an escape from God's temporal judgment that he was going to bring on that city. And yet we should note with astonishment that the repentance was widespread, that it was filled with concrete signs on the part of these people. Jesus' word is the sign of signs. Both of these examples that are brought up by Jesus, Jonah and the Queen of Sheba, They're selected for this very reason. 
Because in both examples, there's the giving of the Word of God, and then there's this response to the Word of God that is positive. And these two examples are particularly damaging to the people of Jesus' time that he's preaching to because their time in the history of redemption was so much less significant back then compared to the Messiah being on the scene, the eternal Son of God becoming man. And both examples, which you probably already noticed and paid attention to, they're Gentiles that are responding to the Word of God. How damaging is that to these people who are listening to Jesus? It substantiates his accusation that indeed they are an evil generation. And so judgment will come upon them. And he speaks about that in verses 31 and 32. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Oh, this is great wisdom, but it's nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus said, Behold, something greater is here. Greater than Solomon. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah had a very simple message. And they responded. But Jesus said to them, Behold, something greater is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. So greater revelation brings a greater burden of response. And the queen of Sheba, probably from the region of southwest Arabia, visited Solomon even earlier than the episode from Jonah, probably in the 10th century B.C. You can read about it in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9. But she came to hear Solomon's wisdom because it had gone around the known world that he has a lot of wisdom. And we know the story of Solomon, that he asked God for that more than anything else, more than wealth and riches. He wanted wisdom. In 1 Kings 4.29 and following, it says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that's on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, and men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon. For all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came. You see what Luke is showing us? This Solomon, he's a type of Christ. Since Jesus Christ is the eternal son, he would possess far more wisdom than God even gave Solomon. Jesus is wisdom itself. And then we consider this, this second example. Solomon you know, he had less wisdom than Jesus, and it would be evident when they spoke. I mean, if you could go back in time and hear them both speak and compare them to one another, you would see that what Solomon has to say may be really great, but my goodness, that is nothing compared to what Jesus has to say. And Solomon talked about items from his point in the history of redemption, and so he talked about the Messiah in much less clarity than Jesus would when he came. And yet the queen, she traveled a great distance, brings great gifts, has a lot of effort to just hear Solomon talk and to praise him and to bring praise to his God. And both the queen of Sheba and the Ninevites will be the judges, Jesus says, of this evil generation. You see, she came 
to marvel. Why did these people go out to listen to Jesus? So they could disagree with him. So they could have reasons not to believe. The Ninevites, when they heard the preaching of Jonah, they repented immediately, day one. What do these people do when Jesus teaches them about righteousness in the kingdom of God? They think that they're beyond repentance. They don't need that. The greater revelation brings a greater burden and a greater response. Why do you listen to the word of God? How do you respond? You see, Jesus is saying his word is the sign. It's the only sign these people are going to get. Jesus is telling the people, Luke is telling us, that the issue is not about receiving something that's decisive in revelation so that they can believe, but the issue is believing the signs that have already been given. Believing the revelation that's already been given. That would have been, that's impressively great on its own. And the something greater than all that came before in the redemptive history is here in Jesus. He's the Messiah who preaches the kingdom. The people have been given so many signs. Even the people that we talk with in our own evil generation, I mean, we could talk about general revelation and a lot of things there. We could talk about the intricacy of creation that God made. We could talk about its beauty. We can talk about how he displays his power as he uses it to devastate the world as well. We could talk about the Bible itself and God's special revelation there. People, it's their own fault for not reading it, especially in our society. You can find it in an instant on the internet or go pick up a Bible. It's all over the place. The fact that people don't already believe is a strong indication that no special sign is going to help anyway. So it's really important not to pander to people who want signs. It's not going to do any good anyway. It might be better to respond like Jesus responded and say, no, you're not going to get a sign. You already have a bunch of signs. Let me remind you of what those signs are. See, according to Jesus, sign seekers are already doomed unless they listen to the word and repent and believe in him. If they receive his word, they're going to be filled full up with the brightness of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, second of all, Jesus' word is not just the sign, but it's the light in verses 33 and 36. Jesus is now going to clarify what this something greater is. I mean, that's what he's been talking about. The crowds are increasing. And so he greets them by calling them evil people. And he tells them that I'm not going to give you what you want because you've already received it. So believe it. And then he clarifies, what is this something greater? He says, Queen of Sheba. Well, there's something greater than Solomon here. Well, when it comes to Jonah, there's something even greater than him that's here. You could point out any storyline, any figure in the Old Covenant, something greater is here, and it's Jesus Christ. The light is his person. The light is Jesus' teaching. The light is is the kingdom of God. The light is all of these things together, but the focus in this particular passage in Luke is that Jesus' teachings are the light. 
God's revelation is shining for everyone to see. In verse 33 we read, but people are going to either look at it with a good eye or a bad eye. We're going to find in verses 34 to 36. 33 says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now this saying has an obvious proverbial character to it that you can even feel yourself. And it was used and applied in many different situations. In fact, Jesus used these same words to talk about different things at different times. So he would use these words to talk about, are you going to serve God or are you going to serve money? And then he uses the same words, Matthew 6. He'll use these phrases about light shining to talk about his teaching, like in our present passage. He'll use these words also to talk about what does it mean to live as his disciple. And he'll use these words. And those are in Matthew 5, for example. Well, here, Jesus is telling the people and us that compared to the light from himself, there is no other sign that would even come close to being useful. Jesus is also accusing the people of hiding God's revelation, not just from themselves, but they're trying to hide it from other people so that they can't see who Jesus really is. Jesus is declaring very clearly in verse 33 that God has put him on a stand. For all who want to see him. Jesus is saying here as well that he's putting his teaching on a stand for all who want to listen and believe in him. Jesus didn't teach in secret. He taught publicly. And he, as stated earlier in his ministry from Mark chapter 4, we read, he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, or is it, is it, or under a bed. It's not brought to be put on the lampstand. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret that should not come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he, what he has been saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more shall be given to you besides. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. But to whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. The light of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed by Jesus, by his apostles, by his church, and it demands a response. And so we learn about people in verses 34 to 36 that they see with good and bad eyesight. It says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy... Your whole body's full of light, but when it's bad, your body's full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. You see, our eyes are the portals to our body for light to enter, and by them we see, and we want healthy, sound eyes that admit light and give us clear sight and clear direction. And simply put, if you have a good eye, you're going to see. And if you have a bad eye, you're going to be blind. Or a sick eye or a worthless eye might be different translations, even evil eye here. But it's obviously a metaphor for spiritual health, isn't it? That's what he's talking about. Is that how do you see spiritually? If you have a good eye, then light Revelation is going to enter into you and fill you with illumination. It's going to brighten up your inside, you see. But if you have a bad eye, God's revelation, light, is not going to enter. And you're going to remain in darkness. And each person is responsible to be receptive to God's light. 
in Jesus Christ and his gospel teaching. And Jesus warns people immediately in verse 35, and there are many people to warn, who think they have spiritual light, but what they really have is darkness. Many people think they have the light, but they reject the word of God in Jesus, so then they really don't have the light of God within them. So it's darkness. So we have to be watchful, of course, not only of our own spiritual condition, of course, we're all each responsible for our own, but we have to be able to evaluate other people's claims about their spiritual light that they seem to possess. Is it really Jesus' word that they're talking about? And then to help them find what it really is that is true spiritual light. I mean, listen to how else Jesus would teach about this topic. So in John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Did you know that that's why Jesus came? He came to heal blind people and make religious, self-righteous people who think they know God and spirituality to make them even more blind. That's why he came, he says. Well, you can read about that in John 9. It's attached to quite an interesting story. Then John 3, earlier 3.19, he says, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It's quite a battle that Jesus initiated by coming into this world and bringing light to a dark world. But you know, the real focus for us, of course, is at the end in the final verse, in verse 36, is that if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. What a wonderful promise to those who receive Jesus' word and lit it into their soul. It's a wonderful promise. It's a beautiful description of those who have received the light, who are wholly illumined by Christ and his word, it's what happens when our lives get transformed by grace, as most of us know. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. You see, our life is completely transformed. A person who has light shining within them it comes out and our lives are totally different. This full illumination that's described here refers to our present life as well as the future. It's a totally different life we experience once we become a Christian. Because we've received the light, we walk in the light, we have it to guide us in the midst of this dark world. The Holy Spirit, when we believe in Jesus Christ, of course, the Holy Spirit lives within us and dwells us immediately. And the word of Christ is continually then makes sense to us because of the Spirit's work. What a wonderful promise and a wonderful life we experience. And we're going to be a source of light to others. Matthew 5, Philippians 2 uses the same imagery to talk about that. Matthew 5 and Philippians 2. It's a full illumination now, but 
there's even more to come when Jesus returns to the eschaton, and then the light will be even brighter. So Jesus' word is the light. Have you had the saving experience? I mean, the way Jesus describes it really is what it feels like. Have you had the sense where light has flooded your soul? The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You would know. It is a completely transformative experience. In 2 Corinthians 4.3, we read this. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'll just read it to you. It talks about transformation. This whole section in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, even ending here in chapter 4, all talks about transformation by the Holy Spirit in our lives. But 2 Corinthians 4.3 starts this way. Even if our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I mean, what a joy and a blessing when God declares. You see what the apostle is saying here? I mean, he's, he's quoting that, that whole section when God created the world. Let light shine out of darkness. And he's saying that's exactly what it's like when he decides to save a soul. Let light shine out of darkness. And God's grace floods the soul of the unbeliever who is now a believer. Is your life experience with God and with Scripture glowing with spiritual truth? If you receive the word of Jesus and keep on receiving it, your life is going to become fully filled with light. You know, Jesus himself said in John 12, while you have the light, of course referring to himself, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. Now Jesus is the divine son of God. He's the greatest revelation ever given and ever will be given. He is, Jesus' word as we saw in our passage today, it's the sign above all signs. There's no greater sign than the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' word is also the light beyond all light. There's no greater sign from God, and there's not going to be one. And there's no brighter light from God than Jesus Christ, and there no one isn't going to be one. Many people hold out on God, demanding him to conclusively demonstrate his power in a way that somehow is going to immediately confirm that God exists, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that the Bible's true, all my doubts are gone, answers all my questions for all people, for all time, and all of history. It's not going to happen. You know why? Because God's not interested. And as Luke recorded for us in our passages today, this is God's offer. Receive the word of Jesus and become wholly filled with light. You know, this passage is set in this context of highly skeptical people and how they're going after Jesus. 
not in the interest to believe. So I have a few comments to make about this that I think will be helpful because, you see, I used to be one of those skeptics. And, you know, most often, such skeptics like we read about here, they're not really serious about believing. So don't be taken in. Don't be gullible by skeptics and their pretensions of seeking and learning. But somehow, they never seem to find much, and they never seem to learn much. They like to tell their Christian friends that they're seekers so they can string them along for whatever reasons they might have. Oh, and there are many reasons, some of which are to keep a friend. Maybe it's a romantic thing. I did it to keep girlfriends in high school. It worked, right? Family harmony. People will say, well, you know, I'm still considering. Even for sport. Yeah, that's why I did it. Yeah, because it was just fun to go after Christians. And I know because I used to be one pretending to be a seeker, but was really a skeptic. These are my high school years. It was a long time ago, but I still remember them. And my high school friends still remember them and bring it up occasionally on Facebook. So, but I was looking at Jesus like the people in this passage with a bad eye, with an evil eye, with a diseased eye, with an eye that wasn't interested in seeing anything, only interested in disbelieving. That's why. So you see, skeptics find security in their challenges because they refuse to have them answered. It doesn't matter what answer you give. It could be a great answer. My guess is you're all ed educated in the gospel enough, you probably give really good answers to skeptics. Yeah. Well, they're not usually interested in having their ans the answers being given to them. That's why they're a skeptic. They think they're so smart. They think they're smarter than the rest of the world, smarter than you. They're just making fun of you, often. So how do you answer challenges from these kinds of challengers? Well, I think we got our best example right here in our passage today. How did Jesus answer him? He said, no. He said, no. Not going to play your game. You see, the number one problem with skeptics is that they don't know their place. They just bellow after God as if he's at their beck and call. But God's not obligated to answer people's desires and anger and display his power to prove himself to them. And if he did, would he really be the great and glorious God that he is? I mean, who is God anyway? And who is mankind? You see, this is the applicable question. Who answers to whom? You know, and it's really interesting, at least in my case, with myself as a skeptic and my other skeptic friends, you know, we had our own little club, um, that's what we needed to learn. You know, and it never dawned on me until one of my Christian friends pointed it out and said pretty much basically that. Who do you think you are anyway? It's like, never dawned on me. Yeah, God's not at my beck and call. If he's really God, he shouldn't answer me. That would be a foolish move. So the skeptic needs to be challenged on his or her pride and learn to face reality and be humbled. So just use scripture. Use the words of Jesus as a sign, as a light for people. And don't waste your time and energy feeding people skepticism. 
So that's one way to answer skeptics. At least it's the way Jesus answered this particular crowd on that particular day. But you know, ultimately, the focus of this passage is the blessing in verse 36. And that's our focus this morning as we read there, if then your whole body's full of light, because you believed on Jesus, accepted his word, having no part dark, it'll be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you its light. What a blessing to be wholly illumined by God's grace, to have it flood your soul, to have Christ in your life, to have his word available to you, to guide you. So may we enjoy the scriptures, the word of God, even more so this coming week, and by God's providential design, you know, tonight I'm teaching at 6.30 here on our statement of faith, and we're actually covering the one article on the Holy Spirit, and I've already decided that we're going to be focusing our attention as we talk about the Holy Spirit on the role of the Spirit in, in illumination, which is what this passage is even talking about. His role in illumining us spiritually. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll continue in our worship this morning. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you this morning. We praise you for the Holy Scriptures that you have written and preserved for us and guide us, and through them teach us everything about yourself we need to know and how it is we can have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We praise you for the revelation, for the illumination that you bring into our souls, for the ongoing teaching and guidance, Holy Spirit, that you give us through your Scriptures and because you indwell us as Christ's own people. We ask that you would make us wholly bright on the inside, as this passage in verse 36 talks about, just constantly illuminating us, bringing to us the light of Christ and the light of the gospel, so that we can see how this gospel can transform and continually transform during our whole life everything about us, so that at the end, we can truly be Christ-like. And we pray these things for Jesus' glory. Amen.